0: Tomorrow, like so many chancellors before him, Jeremy Hunt will leave 11 Downing Street for what must be the most awkward photo op in Westminster, smiling while brandishing his red box. But the autumn statement locked away inside the briefcase is already causing controversy.
1: The Chancellor is expanding the restart scheme in job centres, providing intensive support for those who've been out of work for more than six months. But he will remove benefits from anyone who refuses to accept a job or training after being unemployed for 18 months or more. We believe that work is good for everyone. We don't think that sitting at home on benefits is good for anyone's mental health. And it's not fair to taxpayers either.
0: Following rumours that there might be potential tax cuts in the offing, the Prime Minister confirmed that there might be some goodies on offer tomorrow.
1: Now that inflation is halved and our growth is stronger, meaning revenues are higher, we can begin the next phase and turn our attention to cutting tax.
0: But he was also quick to temper expectations.
1: We can't do everything all at once. It will take discipline and we need to prioritise.
0: With an election coming next year, the difference between triumph and defeat will, as ever, be determined by one thing. It's the economy, stupid. So for a government plummeting in the polls, this autumn statement is an important opportunity to win back some votes. And for the party looking on from the opposition benches, the potential prime minister and chancellor-in-waiting, Tomorrow's statement could scupper their plans, even if they go on to win the
2: next election. When budgets are announced, they're not just the spending plans for the next 12 months, they're the spending plans for the next five years. And so when we talk about the government meeting its fiscal rule, it's not meeting it in 2024, it's supposed to meet it in 2028.
0: You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, how the Tory budget could
2: cause a headache for Labour. I'm Mehreen Khan. I'm the economics editor at The Times. Meren, tomorrow, Jeremy Hunt will
0: stand up in Parliament and deliver his second autumn statement since he became Chancellor. It's easy to forget just the level of chaos the economy was in at this point last year when he did his first statement.
1: We will reverse almost all the tax measures announced in the growth plan three weeks ago that have not started parliamentary legislation. This is from the mini-budget, right? And it's basically, that's kept, gone, gone, Gone. That's kept. Gone. 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 Gone.
2: Gone.
0: Would it be fair to say this year it's going to be a little less lively?
2: Yeah, as I've learned in this job, all fiscal statements or budgets are relative in terms of their excitement. And we got a bit more than uh, we bargained for in 2022. And it's probably a sign of progress that there's not too much fireworks or attention being paid to this autumn statement. That's partially because, as you said, Manveen, it's not trying to reverse the legacy of a hastily dethroned prime minister. And also because it is not quite the budget before an election, it's the penultimate budget before an election. So in that sense, the stakes are a little bit lower than what we might be expecting in March or April next year, which will be the budget before a likely general election later in 2024. And for obvious reasons, that's going to have much more attention on it because it's going to be an intensely political event. So the spring budget is probably the big one, but
0: we have had hints that there might be tax cuts coming tomorrow. The Prime Minister hasn't denied this. Could there be some economic good news?
2: In terms of good news, I think it is actually only good news if we really look at where we were this time last year. So the government has managed to stabilise the public finances. There is less of a market concern around the debt sustainability of the UK. There has been a degree of a return to political stability. And the fact that we're having a quite boring budget would suggest that a lot has changed in the last 12 months. And I think the message from the government is going to be, even though the economy is not looking great, so much has changed in the last 12 months that a lot will also change in the coming 12 months. And perhaps some of the narratives that we have about the UK as being a badly performing economy might be sort of chipped away at this time next year. Some weird things are happening in the UK right now, which is we know that inflation has been very, very high for very, very long and far too long. But inflation does have good consequences for a government because it actually raises what's called the cash measurement of the economy, something called nominal GDP. So inflation is basically generating fast money growth in the economy. And that's because tax revenues go up when inflation goes up, because Mm. we all pay more in in just total cash terms. So the figures actually look better than they they would. Exactly. So inflation has quite useful consequences for the debt ratio, for example, which is calculated as a percentage of GDP. Now, GDP is just much bigger because, as I said, the cash size of the economy is larger. And effectively, what that is going to mean is that because so many more of us are paying higher taxes, because one, most people have not lost their job, even though the economy has been doing quite badly. A lot of people still working and people also getting wage growth. So we have the highest pace of earnings growth in the UK in over 25 years. So when when your wages are going up, you're paying more in taxes. The government is recouping a lot of that tax money.
0: Okay, so there'll be a little room to breathe. You know, as you say, wages have gone up. People might not have felt the benefit of that because everything's been so expensive. But it does mean that the government's been taking in more in taxes and they now have more money to play with than they're expecting. The Times is reporting it might even be as high as £23 billion worth of headroom. but. You know, for most people, we are still in a cost of living crisis. It won't really feel like the danger has passed. We do expect to hear some good news from the Chancellor tomorrow, but just give us now the other side of that. You know, what's the the not so good
2: news? Sure. So I've just given you this sort of healthy part of the balance sheet, which is the fact that sometimes inflation is good and it means extra tax revenues and more fiscal headroom. But then there's the other side where inflation is also bad for the public finances. And the main way that the government feels that is that like everyone else, when interest rates are high, the government also has to pay more to serve its own debt. Mm. So that's the other part of the ledger which will actually erode some of the huge benefits that come with higher inflation. So that's the bad part. And effectively... You know, one of the most important parts of the autumn statement is not actually what the Chancellor is going to say, but what the Office for Budget Responsibility is going to do. Ah. And that's the body which has been set up uh, since 2010 to sort of mark the homework of every Chancellor every time we have a fiscal event. It
0: sort of got ignored under Liz Truss's rule. Yes, <laughs> most people only heard about... for a
2: while. Most people only really knew about the OBR when there was a huge fury over the fact that, as you said, Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng were sidelining this body because actually they didn't want to know how their homework is going to be marked they just wanted to go full throttle and produce it didn't go too well did it but now actually you know a year on the OBR is actually going to be very very central to help the markets understand to help financial journalists like me understand where exactly the government is one year ahead of an election and more importantly where growth is and where inflation is heading in the next couple of years. Marine, people who
0: aren't economists will probably have been quite surprised to hear you talking about inflation in semi-glowing terms, saying you know, it does have great advantages to the government's ledger.
2: Manveen, you're very right to say that when I'm talking about the good news, it's for a small constituency of people who happen yeah. to be in the Treasury. <laughs> but ultimately, when inflation has been as high as it has, it's almost universally bad for people. The small amount of good news that we are having is that inflation is coming down. And the latest figures for October show that inflation actually came down quite sizably. So the biggest single monthly drop, I think, since 1992, which is a drop from 6.7% in September to 4.6% in October. And that's the lowest level of inflation since October 2021. That's the good news. But it's quite qualified good news because 4.6% is still more than double where we have decided that we want inflation to be, which is around 2%, which is the yeah. moderate and stable level that is the target for the Bank of England and is the long-standing anchor that we've had in the UK as what is a normal and healthy rate for inflation. So we're still over double that amount. Is there a danger in celebrating you know, the new inflation rate as much as you know, the government has
0: certainly been very keen to talk about it at every given opportunity.
2: So the other consequence of the 4.6% inflation level is that now it means it's almost entirely certain that the government will meet its target to halve inflation by the end of the year. And it's a good question about how far should a government celebrate meeting its self-imposed, slightly arbitrary target to halve inflation from January 2023 to December 2023. And we know the Chancellor is probably going to spend a a few minutes at his autumn statement sort of, you know, haranguing the opposition about the fact that the government has met a key target. But I think actually it could be somewhat bad news if you're the Bank of England, because you don't want people to think that the inflation bogeyman has been vanquished, because it hasn't. It's still more than double where it needs to be. And inflation, a lot of the times is a psychological phenomena, because if people think that inflation is going away or gone, which is what you might take away from the government's celebrating, then you might think everything's kind of fine now. So maybe I should be spending on that extra piece of furniture or making a big purchase Mm. item and effectively that level of demand so appetite for goods and services is the thing that keeps inflation high so there's a degree to which sometimes people might take the wrong message from all of this notion of halving inflation and it raises a bigger question about whether the government should ever be involved in inflation targeting when effectively 25 years ago what they did was decide that was a job for the bank of england Mm. and not a job for them we won't necessarily thank them for, for the Definitely way it's being talked about not right be now. them. And
0: Maureen, as you say, even though, you know, inflation figures are falling and, you know, there's a lot of celebration around that, a lot of people won't have felt that things have got much easier. You know, this, if this is the last, quite possibly the last autumn statement before an election, the government would want, you know, the electorate to be feeling a little bit chirpier. But going into this winter, things will be quite tough for a lot of people. I mean, just standing back, looking at the bigger picture, looking at the macro level,
2: how is the British economy faring? The short good news is that we haven't fallen into a recession. So that's good. But we're basically barely generating any growth at all. So we're kind of around the zero to 0.1 to 0.2 percent mark. And that means, yes, the government can celebrate the degree to which the economy hasn't crashed under the weight of interest rates, which are over 5%, which hasn't happened since 2007. Mm. And I think if you told most people a few years ago that the interest rates in the UK were going to go above 5%, what do you think is going to happen to the economy? Well, people say, well, one, very high unemployment levels. Two, the economy is going to crash.
0: Because
2: that's the sort of assumptions that are baked in. Unemployment is going up, but it's not gone up drastically, it's at 4.3%, which is still pretty close to historical lows. And the economy hasn't crashed, even though we're in a sort of slow puncture phase of maybe sucking the air out of the economy yeah. as businesses and people spend less. So the the outlook for the short term of the economy is pretty bleak. The Bank of England thinks we'll generate no growth next year. They only think we'll get real growth after 2026. So basically, we're stagnating for a couple of years and hoping that nothing terrible happens in that time that really tips the economy over the edge. Coming
0: up, the economy is stagnating, but there is a general election coming up next year. Whatever Jeremy Hunt sets out tomorrow, could a future Labour government be left paying the bill? We look at how that scenario played out in 1997. That's in just a moment. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. Marine, as we were saying earlier, this is one of the last opportunities for the government to have a budget before the election where they'll want people to feel like they're doing better. There's a reason, you know, elections often, we're told, go one way or the other based on the economy. It's the economy stupid. So this is a real opportunity for them to try and sell their vision and their success so far to the electorate. It'll also be a moment that will be watched very closely by the Labour benches because if polling is to be believed, we could quite possibly have a very different government by the end of next year. How much will what Jeremy Hunt announces now influence
2: what that new government would be able to do if Labour does win the next election? Very much so. And this is a very important set of fiscal statements because Labour is effectively going to inherit the economy that is left by the Tories this time next year if indeed there is a changing of the guard so when budgets are announced they're not just the spending plans for the next 12 months they're the spending plans for the next five years and so when we talk about the government meeting its fiscal rule it's not meeting it In 2024, it's supposed to meet it in 2028. So, in every year of the Parliament, you have different types of spending plans and arrangements to help us get to this magical number in 2028. Now, what we already know is that in March, the Chancellor announced or planned for quite a major sugar rush of fiscal spending in the election year. So, that's 2024. And then after 2024, we have what looks like quite a few years of austerity to pay for that and this is Uh. almost entirely political exercise because of course if you are the sitting chancellor of the day you want to make sure that you're throwing money at people in 2024 to win an election and then you'll deal with the consequences after and the way that that's dealt with is that you have huge amounts of real spending cuts planned for the economy between 2025 and 2028 if labor want and will if they do inherit a government they have to work out how and if they can reverse any of these spending cuts which have been penciled in by the previous chancellor I love that description of a sugar rush. This is literally they are handing out sweets
0: before an election in order to win, but they're going to make up for that by having an austere few years afterwards, which is what any new government will come into.
2: Is there always a sense of if we lose, it's the other party that will have to pay for it? Exactly, so the famous Liam Byrne post-it note which was left for the Tories in 2010 which just said there's no money. So he was a a Treasury Minister at the time. But yes, so budgets in election years are inherently political exercises far more than they are really telling us about what the government wants for the future of the economy. And so there's there's a neat parallel, not an entirely accurate one between what happened in 1997.
1: When Tony Blair emerged from his North London home into the morning sunshine to head for the palace he was almost swamped by well-wishers.
2: Which was the year that New Labour and Tony Blair won a barnstorming majority, almost wiped out the Tory party on the opposition benches and came to power.
1: 18 long years, my party has been in opposition. It could only say it could not do. Today, we are charged with the deep responsibility of government. Today... Enough of talking. It is time now to do. Thank you. And in
2: 1996, Ken Clark was the Chancellor, the Tory Chancellor of the day, who was doing a similar exercise to what Jeremy Hunt is sort of doing now, which is how do you plan a budget which could help you win an election with some spending bungs, and then what happens? after that date so in 1996 Ken Clark rolled out what he called a Rolls Royce budget and actually the economy was in could be in a similar place to where it is today which is that the, the economy was recovering after a very severe protracted recession in the 90s mm. inflation was coming down and Ken Clark was hoping by the time that voters went to vote in May 1997 they'd begin to feel the benefits of uh, economic recovery and also then he could reap the political rewards of that yeah, And sort so- of had that very tough period in the in the major years when we were told
0: it hurt, it worked and this was the moment where it's supposed to be the working. The economy was supposed to be doing
2: better. Exactly and the upswing was just about coinciding with the general election and there was maybe some hope in the Tory backbenchers that they'd be able to reap the rewards of that. So what Ken Clark does is ultimately he sets out what he calls a budget in which he neither Santa Claus nor Scrooge.
1: This isn't a reckless budget on either tax or spending. The run up to Christmas I'm not going to play Santa Claus. But this year, I don't have to play Scrooge either. Mm -hmm. I have one overriding aim, which is the lasting health of the British economy. Oh yes, Uh, and the lasting health of the British economy might win elections, that is true. But my first aim is the lasting health of the British economy, and we're securing that by creating... The best conditions for British businesses and British men and women who earn a living.
2: So he's giving money to some people and taking away from others.
1: We need another five years of this government's commitment to raise the wealth-creating potential of the British economy by improving incentives, reducing the role of the state and creating a climate for enterprise.
2: So we see things like tax breaks for young families. There is a sense in which every household would be able to get £1,100 extra in their pocket because of what Ken Clarke announces. But then he's also raising taxes on things like fuel duty and getting that money back. Mm. So it's quite a balanced political exercise, but it's definitely designed in order to show voters that the Tories are still a party of sound fiscal management, a naked political attempt to win over some voters before an election year. And... We all know how it ended. The Tories don't win that election. Mm. Labour then come to power, but they're then faced with a set of fiscal circumstances in which there is a lot of spending cuts baked in that goes contrary to all the political promises that new Labour have made for the electorate in 1997.
0: And why, when they come in, are they not able
2: to reverse
0: any of those promises or, you know, set the
2: economic agenda to be closer to what they had promised in their manifesto and on the way in? They can. They can. But they have to find the money to do it. So if we go back to today, as I mentioned, between 2024 and 2028, the government has penciled in real-term cash spending cuts for departments in governments. So if Labour say, we don't like this, this looks too much like austerity to us, we want to raise departmental spending budgets, the first question is, how are you going to raise the money to do that? The problem the Labour Party has is that everything they've said to us so far, and I spoke to Rachel Reeves last week, is that Labour will not be raising taxes. Hmm. They have ruled out increasing the tax burden in the UK because they think it's already too high and it's already too high on working people. So they'll be stuck with with those cuts.
0: It's not an exact parallel, but you you talked about 1997. Tony Blair's government got in promising tax cuts, promising there wouldn't be tax rises. There were. As you said, you, you met Rachel Reeves last week. How does she feel about about what's coming. I mean where where is the room for manoeuvre for her?
2: I think Rachel Reeves's instincts are to present herself as a Chancellor that is going to be one, the first female Chancellor this country's ever had, and two, to restore Labour's reputation as a party that can deliver economic growth and fiscal credibility. She wants to win over the City of London. She wants to win over the big business community, provide them with regulatory certainty and hope that just by being a fresh face to some degree, that there will be growth benefits attached to this. I think that's a sensible line of attack against the Tories and a good campaigning rhetoric, but I'm not sure whether it will meet people's appetite for change which seems to be in the air after 13 years of Tory government. And there are other big geopolitical issues, like the fact that the UK is in the middle of a global subsidies race with a cash-rich US and a Europe that's very intent on doing decarbonisation, mm. and we just don't know how to compete. And that means that companies will choose to set up in the US or in Germany and France because they're getting direct cash transfers from governments. So why the hell would they ever want to come to the UK to build their new gigafactories? Oh. So for Jeremy Hunt...
0: Standing up tomorrow, you know, he knows that Rachel Reeves isn't able to answer all the tough questions. But at the same time, he can see a fresh face on the other side, on the opposite bench, who is gaining credibility in the city. There's a lot for him to be worried about. Quite a lot of people going into this winter will still be feeling the squeeze. You know, there's high energy costs. A lot of them will feel their mortgages suddenly going up. There are hints that there might be help on the way in this autumn statement.
2: Could there be tax cuts? What are you hearing? It looks like the Treasury is actively contemplating tax cuts, not just for next spring, so before a general election, a few months before a general election, but also at the autumn statement. So we've had lots of rumours about inheritance tax, that it might be gone altogether, or it could actually be reduced from the current 40% to 20% rate. But the government thinks that that might not be enough, primarily because this is a tax cut that would be aimed at the very, very wealthy. So about the richest 4% of people in the UK pay inheritance tax. So Mm. it's perhaps not an equally broad-based measure. And on the broad-based stuff, there's two real forms of tax that could deliver the government a big sort of bang for its buck. One of those is an income tax cut, so a reduction in the basic rate of income tax, perhaps by 1p. So that that would help the poorest? Exactly. That would help the poorest people and also everyone, because the way that income tax works is that you pay sort of staggered rates from the bottom all the way to the top. And then there's another broader base tax, which would be national assurance. And this is something that various Tory governments have been playing around with. And national assurance has gone up both for workers and for companies. And that's something else that could deliver quite a major shot in the arm for the government's electoral prospects and also for the economy, because it does mean putting more money back into people's pockets. And do they now feel confident they have the money to be able to do with something as big as that? It sounds like some of the estimates for the fiscal headroom, so the amount of space the Chancellor has to spend... And still meet his fiscal target might be much bigger than most of us expected. So, the figure sort of banded around earlier this month was around 12 billion, but there are some estimates that the OBR could give the Chancellor at least 23 billion, which is almost a doubling of his headroom. So, whether he can spend all of it or wants to save most of it is still a political decision that needs to be made. But it does suggest that there is a lot more wiggle room that the Chancellor has this autumn, and he won't have to just wait and deliver all of the firepower next spring. And we do know that borrowing costs are higher than ever.
0: So some chances would think about just paying back some of the debt at the moment, but it'll be very tempting with an election next year to try and make people feel a bit better first.
2: Definitely, but I think it's really important to note that you know there's no such thing as a free lunch when you've still got inflation, perhaps more than double the Bank of England's target. And even if the government does want to deliver tax cuts, what that's likely to mean is the Bank of England will then have to either perhaps raise interest rates again or keep them at the very, very high levels and not cut interest rates next year. So there will be some people that will still lose out because we won't get any monetary easing in 2024 if the government wants to deliver tax cuts, and that could help keep inflation high. So in one sense, is the government might give with really one hand and the Bank of England might have to take away with the other. And that sort of leads us
0: back to, you know, we we have this autumn statement tomorrow. We have another budget coming in spring. We tend to think in these six-month cycles, a lot of these policies are about winning the next election as much as changing the fate of the economy. Is there a wider plan on both sides of the House at the moment to combat the fundamental problems you've been talking about? You know, the lack of growth, the problem of inflation, the higher costs people are battling. Is there a sense of
2: an economic mission from either side? So it's worth remembering that we're perhaps still in the midst of some of the worst economic emergencies that any countries have ever faced in the span of a few years and for the uk that probably starts with brexit in 2016 and then becomes a pandemic in 2020 and then it becomes an energy crisis in 2022 and let's not forget we have another looming geopolitical crisis in the middle east which could always come back and hurt us in the oil markets or the gas markets so we're still probably stuck in an emergency sort of period And often in these emergencies, the ability or the capacity of politicians to have longer-term strategic thinking is very heavily diminished and they're almost always motivated by short-term political incentives. Having said that, we do know what the UK's problems are. They are about investment. They are about productivity, which is weak. They're about the fact that the state perhaps needs to do better in allocating capital to the growth industries of the future, which is in tech and now definitely in the green sector. It will be very interesting if we do have a new chancellor next year, and it is Rachel Reeves, whether they are able to do what Blair and Brown in '97 did, which was to offer a vision for what modern Britain looks like. And I think it's the key question for Labour is how much they're willing to actually push their own ambition onto the financial markets or the people who lend us money to say, look, we understand that you're worried but actually we're going to do this in a much more sensible, structured way and you should trust us because we, one, have a very strong political mandate, we're here to stay and we want to create a business environment in which you guys all get to flourish and then hope that that also is a benefit which is passed on to ordinary working people.
0: You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Manveen Rana, and my guest, economics editor for The Times, Maireen Khan. If you're a subscriber, you can find all of Marine's meticulous reporting around the autumn statement tomorrow at thetimes.co.uk. This episode was produced by Taryn Siegel, with production help from Priyanka Deladia. The executive producers today were Kate Ford and James Shield, and sound design was by Hannah Farrell. If you can, please do leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow.